0: All right, well, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm Josh Patterson, one of your hosts, and with me today is my good friend Marty Frederick. Marty, how's it going, man?
1: Pretty good, Josh. I'm uh, after our podcast recording today. I'm going to be going to my uh, temporary job of uh, that I've started, which is totally outside my niche. I'm I'm soldering guitar pedals. <laughs> I've been helping my friend with a guitar pedal company and I've been soldering, and in order to take the job, I had to be taught how to solder, so I didn't know anything about it at first. I know that most people probably don't care about that a lick, but (laughs) I just, I thought I would, because it's kind of unique, but.
0: Yeah, I have zero, zero expertise or knowledge uh, when it comes to soldering anything, (laughs) so I'm, yeah, I have nothing to add to that at all. Except <laughs> Sorry, have I, fun.
1: Yeah. Have I didn't fun. give you anything. Enjoy to like, yourself. <laughs> I didn't give you anything to like create banter. I just like shared something <laughs> about myself. Uh we, we did an episode a couple of weeks ago about narcissism and that's probably, you know, there's something in there probably. Um From me, Uh, (laughs) but but Uh, I guess I will say this: It was my ninth, my my daughter's ninth birthday, yesterday.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. You're an old man. That's all I gotta say. Holy (laughs) diving,
1: (laughs) I'm getting up there, and uh, she had a great day, and uh, we had cake and cupcakes and ice cream, Uh, and then she wanted homemade Panera because you know, with quarantine, uh, we can't really go to Panera. So we had macaroni and cheese, and then for some reason, she chose chicken noodle soup instead of broccoli cheddar soup but hey that works uh so it was good it was good man
0: sweet i i'm gonna spill the tea real quick on one of your other kids because i just thought it was so funny uh elliot your oldest how old did he turn just recently 10 yeah yeah. so (laughs) marty sent me this this text message that had a picture of like the birthday list that his son elliot wrote and it had like what he wanted for dinner time and on there, it said margaritas, and then in parentheses, the real stuff.
1: <laughs> that's right. That's
0: like, bro, what are you,
1: what are you but doing? To, but, to, but to protect my 10-year-old son, he was he was putting it on the menu for the adults. It wasn't for him. Mm. So I want to make sure that everyone knows we don't allow our 10-year-old son to drink alcoholic margaritas. That's good. <laughs> Just to that's make crazy. sure everyone knows.
0: <laughs> yeah, we have to shut this thing down right now if that was the case. Yeah, that's true. Well, perhaps we've dug ourselves into deep enough of a hole that we should uh, bring on our guest <laughs> before they run off on us. Yeah. So, so with us today, uh, we have Pastor Ye- uh, Eugene Cho. Eugene, how's it going?
2: Good. How are you doing? A little concerned about the margaritas, but excited to be here. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> right, right. That's why we had to shut it down. So, yeah. you know, yeah. we don't want to take that too far.
1: Well, Eugene, before we go any further, we have a question that we ask every guest that comes on the podcast. Uh, It's really important to us. Uh, We realize uh, you being out on the West Coast, there's a shortage of uh, answers to this question, but we'll ask anyway. Um, Who is your favorite ice hockey team?
2: Wow. That is (laughs) the first time I have been asked about ice hockey ever, which shows you a little bit about how little engaged the Northwest is. Yeah. As you know, we'll be getting our own team very yep. soon, and I'm yeah. very excited about that. Even though I won't be here in Seattle when that happens, disappointed about that. But I grew up loving the New York Islanders.
0: Oh, cool! Wow. For whatever, that's whatever two reason. In a row.
2: For whatever reason, I just ended up really, really liking them. Uh, but I don't follow hockey too much, to be honest. But along with liking the Islanders. Uh, who doesn't like the Michael Jordan of hockey, Mr. Wayne Gretzky. Yeah, um, yeah. So, yeah. But that's all I can talk to you about, um, <laughs> hockey. Uh, I thought you were
1: going to say Michael Scott. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. no. But
2: I am, I, I am genuinely excited about um, following the Seattle hockey team. I've never gone to an NHL game. It's on my bucket list. And living in Seattle, there have been occasions I've wanted to, and have checked out ticket prices in Vancouver mm. um, for the Canucks. And it is a hot commodity in Vancouver and I can never seem to get a ticket to get, to go, to go to a game there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, Eugene, this well, I'll have to make you a deal. Once, once you're um, cause I think you're talking about possibly relocating to the DC area. That's where I live. And so the, Jesus' favorite hockey team is the Washington Capitals. That's no. in the Bible. Um if you don't believe me, just read the whole thing and you'll find it somewhere. Got it. Um, I will I did,
2: I did find it in Leviticus fourteen, thirteen. I think that's where yeah. I found it.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I'll I'll uh put forth some hospitality and I'll invite you to a Washington Capitals game and I'll I'll take you there. So Sounds good. <laughs> Sweet.
1: So today, Eugene, um, we, we just want to spend a little bit of time, before we get into our topic today, uh, getting to know who you are. So who are you? What do you do? What's, what, what's been your faith upbringing? Uh, what brings you to the point you are today?
2: Sure. Well, again, thanks again for having me. Uh, I was born in Seoul, South Korea, and immigrated when I was six years old to San Francisco. Uh, my parents were both born in what is now called North Korea. Uh, Back then, or at least long, long time ago, there was only one Korea. My great-grandfather was one of the first people in his small little village outside of a larger city called Pyongyang uh, to say yes to Jesus. And so as a result, uh, my great-grandmother and his whole household came to faith. Even though um, faith was part of our family lineage and story, I was 18 years old when I made a personal profession to following Jesus uh, in San Francisco. Like others who may have had faith integrated into their family, I sort of uh, rebelled in my teenage years, didn't want to go to church, thought it was ridiculous, and uh, that was part of my story. But growing up in San Francisco as an immigrant, I think being an other uh, has always been a part of my lens of how I see, not just faith, but how I see life. Uh, Being an immigrant, there were some good things, but there were lots of challenging things as well. I think when you're in first grade or second grade or third grade, um, I just wrestled with identity, wrestled with belonging, wrestled with lots of various struggles. And so by the time I got into middle school, I was voted the shyest kid, developed a stuttering problem, and just um, really had an anger issue. Um, So it's kind of a long story. But when I was 18 years old, I think encountering Jesus in a very intimate way. Uh, Is very much a part of who I am double majored in psychology and theater. And I share that just to point out the fact that in high school, one of the things about my life that I'm most proud of um, was identifying my biggest fear. Uh, Sometime in high school, where I realized that people and engaging people and public speaking those were some of my biggest fears in my life. And so I identified it and realized that if I don't confront this now, this is something I'm going to struggle with for the rest of my life. And so I mustered all the guts that I could and auditioned for a theater play in high school, Midsummer Night's Dream by a guy named Shakespeare. And I was cast for the illustrious role of the wall. Pause for a dramatic effect. I think it was two lines, maybe three, if I'm being very progressive. And But those two, three lines were probably some of the most impactful events of my life. And fast forward many, many years. In college, I began to discern a call into ministry. And I've been ministering now for the past, gosh, nearly 28, 30 years or so. Planted a church with my wife called Quest Church in Seattle for about 18, 19 years. It's an amazing multi-ethnic, multi-generational urban church. And about a year and a half ago, uh, decided to step down. Um, Not quite sure what God had in store for us, uh, but I have been encouraging pastors and missionaries around the world. And I've also been leading One Day's Wages, which is a humanitarian organization that my wife and I also run. And then uh, I will soon be stepping into a new role, which I'm sure we'll talk about, called Bread for the World as its new president beginning on July 1. There it is.
0: Nice. That's awesome. (laughs) Thank you so much for sharing uh, your story with us. And Actually, um, just on an aside, the the high school ministry – so I'm a high school and young adult pastor. I don't think I shared that with you. Uh, But the high school ministry that I help oversee is called Quest. So that's a good right. name. That's a good name. I like it. Yeah. I like it. <laughs> cool. Well, uh, today, Eugene, we wanted to, to chat with you because you put out a, an extremely helpful book um, called Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk, A Christian's Guide to Engaging Politics. Um, and what I loved about your book just right off the bat is that um, if you pick this book up and you are a conservative Christian. There are things that will make you mad. And if you're a more progressive or liberal Christian, there are things that will make you mad. Uh, But the thing that holds your book together is Jesus. And I think that's so uh, cool and so important because here at Rethinking Faith, that's like the point of what we do. We want people to be able to think in a wide variety of ways, but all centered still on the person of Jesus. So uh, thank you for, for your book. And the, the first question we want to ask you is, why uh, did you write your book? What uh, problems were you trying to solve or, or what trouble did you see?
2: Sure. Well, you know, when I started writing this book about two and a half, three years ago, I worked on it and I quit writing it four times. Wow. Like There were four distinct places where I said, I can't do this. And the reason why is because I began to imagine as I started to write it, as you noted, I was thinking about all of the people that would be angry or upset on both sides of this particular conversation. And even though I'm turning 50 years old this year, I still struggle with uh, that whole factor of wanting to please everyone. I want to be liked by everybody. And when you're talking about the subjects of religion and politics, those are probably two topics you don't want to talk about. You can talk (laughs) about hockey and talk about margaritas and everybody will love you. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But just the reality is um, I quit writing it because I was scared of that. But having said that, as I write in the book, there are, I think a dangerous rhetoric. There is a dangerous toxic culture around faith and politics. And while it's not necessarily our, um, you know, job to address every single thing in our society. So when I think about this book, I'm not writing it necessarily for everybody. I'm writing it to my family, which is the Capital C Church. And I think in the Capital C Church, we either don't talk about it at all because we think politics is not spiritual and we should only focus on spiritual things. Or I think there are some Christians who become so obsessed by politics that we've gone to bed with politics and politicians and political parties. And so we need to name that elephant. And I think there are Christians like myself who wrestle with it. We don't have all the answers, but we need some guidance how to bumble and stumble our way through just to make sure that our theology is informing our politics Rather than our politics informing our theology, so that's why I felt the need as a pastor, as a believer, to make an imperfect attempt to address these things.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's so good. And how's that for a, a tweetable moment, Marty? I think you actually yeah. just put that that out the other day on on social media. This idea that um, we should have our theology informing our politics instead of the other way around. Yeah. Um, and so in your, in your book, Eugene, you kind of, uh, and you just, just now mentioned like two different kinds of, or, or, or some ways that people engage. Some Christians tend to be more standoffish with politics, and some people seem to go over the top. Um, Marty will tell you, or like, he, he will accuse me of being one of those people that are more standoffish <laughs> mm-hmm. for, for various reasons. Um, and so my question is, because uh, your book challenged me in, in a very good way. Um, why, why is it that politics matters? Why should we be having this conversation as, as Christians?
2: Sure. Well, I think that is a great question and it's a question that we should be talking about. I'm going to step back just one moment. You know, I've had some Christians, particularly Christian pastors and leaders, tell me, Eugene, you're making a mistake by writing this book. As a leader, as a pastor, you shouldn't be talking about politics, whether it's from the pulpit or writing about it. And part of the reason why I gently and pastorally push back is I think, as leaders, whether we're pastors or whatever, as leaders, as thought leaders, we're uh, called to help shape and form the discipleship of our congregations. Mm-hmm. And if we're not discipling our congregations around these really important topics like politics, because we feel like this is too messy, too uncomfortable. The truth is, if we're not discipling them, they're being discipled by someone else or by somewhere else. And I think that's what's happening in our world and culture, whether it's cable news, our political pundits, we're being shaped by others. Now, I'm not suggesting that my book is the end all, that it's the perfect solution to everything, but I think it's really around the spiritual formation, the thought formation Now, politics matter, I know the word politics is kind of a scary word. It has a lot of baggage to it. And I think we should name it that, yes, there's a lot of mess around it. But having said that, if you peel off the layers, the word politics, in a simple definition, is the kind of the process of governance. That's what it is. It's the process of governance. And any healthy society, even a healthy church or organization, needs healthy governance and that's what politics is so politics matter because politics informs policies that ultimately impact people and the last time i read the bible god really cares about people that's why politics matter now can it be used in ways that are really destructive and bad absolutely but that's the reason why we should engage politics Does it uh, inform policies in good ways? Absolutely. Just to give a small example, right now, as you noted in the introduction, we're in this quarantine time, and as a result, all of us are home. I'm grateful, despite the fact that there are moments when I'm just just going nuts and (laughs) want to get out. But I realize it is a privilege to be able to stay home because I know people, even in my previous congregation or friends that have to go to work that have to weather some of the anxiety of getting on public transit in really populated contexts because they're among the essential workers whether they're grocery store workers whether they're police or fire workers and the list goes on and so they do, they're doing it yes because Because it's part of their desire to do and be about the common good, but also because it's their only way uh, to put food on the table for their respective families. I don't know if you read some of the statistics that came out this past week from the Federal Reserve, but this is stunning to me. 40% of American families whose family income is under $49,000 a year, 40% are currently unemployed. Mm-hmm. And so those jobs aren't going to come back on their own, like this is part of where good governance and good leadership really, really matters. Obviously, we have so many other examples, but that's the reason why mm-hmm. politics matters
1: mm-hmm. yeah that's and that's really good in um you know reading through your book uh, at the beginning, you kind of mentioned and you kind of bring up the idea um that you know as as people were sitting around watching an election happen, people are on their phones and they're really worried about. Um, who the person is that's being uh, that's being named as the winner of the election and you and then it, like the, in, in the coming pages you kind of say you can input any candidate you want into that spot because it doesn't really matter because no matter who you are you're living in that place but um, you know I, I remember 2016 that specific candidate being the Republican candidate. Um, And I remember hearing uh, the phrase that you use, um, and I want to make sure to be very clear that you put quotations around this thought process, and so do we, uh, that real Christians uh, vote Republican. Um, Can you explain to us why that is and where this phenomenon has come from? Because it seems very strange that this has kind of been embedded into who we are.
2: Yeah, you know, I became a Christian, as I shared earlier, at the age of 18. And even then, I was interested in politics. Now, I don't obsess about politics. I'm not glued to the, pol- uh, the cable TV news. My only foray into politics was in middle school when I ran for middle school president in eighth grade, and I was crushed, maybe got six, seven percentage of the votes. Even that was encouraging to me, being a really shy kid. But, yeah. you know, uh, when I became a Christian, And I asked questions about how we engaged political process and activism and change. I was stunned because the majority of the responses I got was, you don't ask that question. Good Christians just vote Republican. And I think any time in the church we discourage conversation, that's not good news. That's just not helpful to our formation. And I think the whole purpose of your podcast is to, again, encourage people to stimulate people, to ask hard questions, to uh, foster good conversations. But I was just told that good Christians or real Christians simply vote Republican because along the lines of morality, and specifically there was one or maybe two issues that we had to be about, that we had to champion it. And as a result, I think the larger kind of mentality was that Christians were simply about one issue. It was about abortion and or about gay marriage. And that was it. That was the end of the conversation. And, um, you know, it just flustered me because while those conversations were important, I thought it was also significant for us to realize that Uh, This is where I'm really encouraged by the ethics of our Catholic sisters and brothers, that when they're speaking about the pro-life movement, uh, and I care about the unborn, I have spoken at different places advocating for the rights of the unborn, but our Catholic sisters and brothers speak about the ethics of the, 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 the whole life ethic from womb to tomb, that it all matters to God, and it should matter. And the Republican Party didn't necessarily speak or address as passionately about those things. Ironically, living in Seattle in the Pacific Northwest, now what I hear is the opposite. Like real Christians, woke Christians, justice-minded Christians only vote Democratic. And in many ways, it sounds as, I think, um, fundamentalistic as I heard when I was growing up. Uh, on the other end so my point is this i'm not suggesting that you shouldn't vote republican or democrat i'm simply saying in the book that our ultimate allegiance should not be to political lines or to politicians that we need to really activate this mentality of wrestling with politicians wrestling with platforms wrestling with issues as you probably understand one of the most the frequent question that i get just so often especially after writing this book is Are you a Republican or a Democrat? People want to know. They want to box us in. Are you a Republican or a Democrat? And my honest answer, I'm not trying to be circuitous. I know what they're asking, but my honest answer is, what are we talking about? What's the issue we're speaking about? As if to think that there are people who would assume that a Christian, our values, our ethics, our convictions can be compartmentalized. Or the totality of the kingdom of God can be consumed by one party. I just think that's crazy. And so that's what I'm trying to say in the book.
1: And, you know, especially in today's modern day, you know, in recent events in the last couple of weeks, last couple of months with um, the the murder of Ahmaud Arbery in Georgia, um, and you know the the concept of being you know pro-life in every aspect of the of the of the word from womb to tomb, but also not just stopping at that, but but you know calling as you did later in your book, um, mentioning you 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 called it being pro-all life, um, and essentially saying like you know every person's life matters, every person uh, needs to be thought of, and there's a recent article in Relevant magazine that kind of talks about that, that calls Christians to say basically if you're really going to say that you're pro-life, you need to be pro-life about every human, about every person, no matter who they are. Uh, and so that was interesting to me as I was reading your book, that article also came out and this situation mm. kind of came to light. Uh, and so as kind of coming from both different sides that, you know, as Josh asked earlier, why does politics matter? But then, you know, you know with this whole idea of being pro-all life, as you mentioned, it's important to notice that, you know, politics is how... Uh, those types of things can be fixed, uh, at least in our country's context. Sure, uh, sure.
2: Yeah, and I'm not suggesting that politics is the only way that we embody our faith and love our neighbors. I think if we think it's the only way, then I think we're teetering into this idea that this really is an obsession. It can be idolatrous. It's not the only way. But I do believe that it is one way, and it is a significant way for us to embody our faith and to love our neighbors, And to your point, I think it's really, really significant for us to to name that situation with Ahmad Harbury, And I applaud you for calling it for what it is, for murder. I mean, it was uh, horrendous. It was so violent. It was unnecessary. And it's part of the trauma for many of our Black and brown sisters and brothers here, especially in this country. And I think as we're speaking about loving our neighbors, I think this is why so many of jesus's stories about loving neighbors serving neighbors is the point that he makes that to love our neighbors is not just to love those who look like you think like you feel like you vote like you or worship like you that's the call of what it means to be a follower of jesus and i want to amplify uh being a follower of jesus is not easy but it is the call that Christ calls us to do. It's not easy to love our neighbors is not an easy thing to do, but it is precisely part of the two great commandments of following Jesus.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, Marty, forgive me in our outline. Uh, this was a, a question um, that was going to come from you, but I think it, it just fits. <laughs> it fits, it fits, uh, how, with the, the direction the conversation is going in right now. Um, but Eugene, it you talk about so we've seen that that getting in bed with a specific political party is not helpful. To to sell our souls out to either the Democrats or the Republicans or the Tea Party or whoever's not helpful. Um, but it can't just stop there. And in the book you talk about this importance of of bridge building, of coming um together and listening to one another. Can you uh share some of that with us?
2: Sure. I mean, um, when I think about Jesus and I think about his ministry, amazing miracles, pretty impressive resume. His LinkedIn profile would be quite impressive. Um, we can speak at length about the supernatural things that Jesus does. And we should, you know, as Christians, we should read the scriptures, see what we can discern and learn. I think as we do it, because sometimes as human beings, we, we love and we are animated by the superhero movies in Hollywood and so forth. But the thing about Jesus that most compels me, it fascinates me, is how he, he really seeks out the other. He seeks out those who've been marginalized. He seeks out those who've been forgotten in society. And one of the ways that he does that is that he breaks bread. He eats with people, he eats with neighbors, he eats with women, he goes to the tax collector's home. And I just sometimes wonder if we, having read the Bible so often or gone to our share of, uh, you know, Bible camps or what have you, we forget how crazy it is that the Son of God, the God of the universe in flesh, chooses to be one of us and breaks bread. And in doing so, I think there's just something about the art of neighboring, the art of loving the other. And I think we're living in a time, not just in politics, but in our larger culture, where we are simply creating echo chambers, wanting to be around people that are just like us. Therefore, our thoughts and views are affirmed by others. And so now we're simply praising ourselves and patting ourselves to say, you're brilliant, you're great, you're amazing, you're wonderful, and clearly, We do need some of that, but if we're only affirming everything that we believe in, um, that's probably not a good thing, which is often the times, the reasons why Jesus answers question by asking questions. He's constantly challenging us as well. And so I think politics is certainly in that realm. And so you've got that party and my party, your party, my party, And we're simply identifying who's with me and who's against me, who are my enemies and who are my allies. And so it doesn't necessarily foster collaboration, partnership, that whole bipartisanship that we need in our political process for us to come to a common ground. And I do feel like it's always been like this, at least in modern history, but especially in the last several elections. It just feels like it's at a different level to the point that coming back to Christians, I know Christians that refuse to be in friendship relationship, that refuse to be in the same church. So churches and small groups and families have been severed because of political lines and political affiliations. Now, I don't want to minimize that. It's probably because there are issues there, but I still feel like while we can acknowledge the tension of diversity in political views, that we can still wrestle through those things.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, all that's so good. And I think one of the chapters I enjoyed, uh, in your book the most was the chapter you talked about living out your convictions. Um, and you tell a story, um, about, uh, your wife and you, uh, being, you know, starting up your, your foundation. And, uh, one of the things that you guys had committed to doing was, uh, giving up your salary for a year. Um, and uh, that led to a pretty interesting situation uh, that, <laughs> with, with you and your house and, uh, and all of those different things. But um, can you, I, I'm, I'm, I want to talk about, um, well, obviously, I'd be interested in you sharing that story a little bit. But also, um, you know, as Christians, we can be focusing on a lot of the wrong things. Uh, and so what does it look like to live out our convictions as a Christian shaped by the kingdom of God?
2: Well, you know, I, I, I love that question. And I think there in the question lies the answer when you mention the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. So as Christians, obviously, we have to be about Jesus. But I would push back and say, which, jer- which version of Jesus are we talking about here? Yeah. Because there's lots of different versions of Jesus that we can somehow propagate. And as we're reading the scriptures and as we're studying about Jesus, if Jesus never challenges us, if Jesus never disrupts us, then I fear what's happened is that we've somehow made Jesus into our own image. And that's called idolatry. And that's the danger about Christianity and or about cultural Christianity. So for us, yes, we have to make Jesus the center, but we have to also speak about what is the kingdom of God? that is being accompanied by our convictions of who Jesus is. And this is really where scriptures really matters. I think his ethics, the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, in addition to the whole of the scripture, the ethics of Jesus as he speaks about the kingdom of God in the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, Romans chapter 12, all of these things gives us an example, gives us an embodiment about who Jesus is and what the kingdom of God is about. So going back to your original question, if we reduce civic engagement, so for us as Christians, we engage as civic citizens because of our faith. We believe that that's part of what it means. To be a follower of Jesus means that we should try to be good citizens. So on that line, if we reduce civic engagement to one vote every two or four years, we're actually part of the problem. It's like telling Christians, Go to church two Sundays out of a month, and you'll be good. If that's the essence of what it means to be a Christian. So if we reduce civic engagement to one vote, and then to put that sticker, I voted on social media everywhere we go. Hey, look at me. I'm so woke. Then what I would suggest is, hey, we have to live out our faith every single day. What we do on Monday morning, what we do on Wednesday afternoon, what we do, even during this challenging quarantine COVID-19 time, it really does matter. And I think that's the compelling faith. And I, I, I'm really always reticent and reluctant to share about how we started one day's wages. No, but as you noted, we felt convicted to give up a year's wages. It wasn't something that we shared initially, but that took us on a three-year journey of saving, simplifying and selling off things that we didn't need to come up with a year's wages, which was $68,000 was my salary back then. But in some ways, I think that was also the connecting point because we didn't want to ask people to do something that we weren't willing to do ourselves. And I think if we're honest, the capital C church, Christianity, we have a credibility issue, we just do. Uh, The word that is accompanied by Christians is a word that begins with H, and it's not hallelujah, it's the word hypocrisy. It's a credibility issue, and I just think that we don't, we should never tout ourselves as perfect because that would be a lie, but I think people are seeing a dissonance because we're not necessarily embodying, practicing what we say is really important. So to go back to our conversation 10 minutes ago, if we say we are about pro-life, are we simply saying we're anti-abortion or are we saying we're pro-life, the whole ethic from womb to tomb? And I think those who aren't Christians aren't quite sure. So that's what I would say about, uh, again, trying to be about the kingdom of God. Yeah, Yeah, that... um... I really like
0: what you had to say there, Eugene, and it, it, it brings up in my mind because this is something I, I genuine, genuinely wrestle with, uh, Marty and I have had many conversations about this, uh, him and I don't necessarily agree fully, but, um, and it's, it's this question of voting and you brought up, I think a good point that if we only vote once every two to four years, then we're part of the problem. And so with that, the the question that comes up in my mind is, sh- like, I think should Christians vote and can Christians vote is an interesting, those are two different questions. And so I wrestle with that. Um, I have some anabaptist leanings and tendencies and some convictions there. Um, and I often feel like, I mean, you, you said it nicely, voting can be kind of a, a cop out. You know, oh, I voted, pat myself on the back. Now I can not do anything for four years. Um, but I just want to see what your thoughts are when it comes to voting. Um, sure. Yeah.
2: Well, you know, I have some mixed feelings about voting, but just overall, I think voting is a privilege. I think voting is a duty and I think we should vote. I understand my friends whether they're Anabaptists or from other leanings, where they've really wrestled with issues, wrestled with politicians, and out of their ethics or their integrity, they've chosen not to vote. So I want to leave room and space for that, but I would still urge them to consider voting. And there's a couple of reasons why I say that. Number one is I do believe that as Christians, we're called to be good citizens of the land that we live in that could mean a lot of different things. In our context, voting is one of the ways that we exercise good citizenship. The second reason why I would say that is because I think because voting is a direct part of what we spoke about in terms of the political process, and the political process is one way and an important way for us to think not just for myself, but to also be mindful of my neighbors, particularly those who are on the margins or forgotten. So when I vote, I don't just vote with my own thoughts in mind. It's a way for me to try to link loving God and loving my neighbors together, acknowledging there's no perfect candidate, there's no perfect party, there's no perfect way, but it is one way for me to do it. The last thing that I'll say about voting It's because the reason why I believe, and I'll be really blunt here, the reason why I think sometimes we entertain thoughts of not voting is because of our privilege. It's because of our privilege, we think, you know what, I don't have to vote. If you and I were living in countries where it was led by dictatorial, brutal regimes, where voting was not even on the table, trust me, we would have a radically different perspective on voting and on the democratic process. So as much as we can and should critique the imperfect democracy of of our respective country, I also just want to name the fact that I'm grateful that we live in a country where you and I can even have this conversation and I don't have to worry about someone listening into this conversation and be fearful of my life or the life of my family that's a reality it is happening i have family whether or not they're alive or not i'm not sure but i've been told that we had many family that remained in north korea when the war broke out when our family fled south my family fled south my my father was 6 years old when he fled along with his family and so There isn't a week that goes by when just something triggers an imagination about what life must be like in our homeland, the original homeland for many folks that were born in that part of the northern part of Korea. So I I do believe that for some of us, it's because there is a part of privilege where we can say, you know what, I can choose uh, to not participate. Um, So that's what I would say about voting.
0: Sweet. Sweet. Yeah that's that's really helpful Eugene and in fact that that issue that you brought up this idea of privilege is really the only argument that like pushes me in the other direction and to be fair I voted in the last election I didn't sleep for 3 days because it 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 wrecked me that much and I didn't even vote for somebody who I thought was you know had the ability to win but um, I was having this a very similar conversation uh, with a gentleman Uh, named Drew Hart the other day. He's a a theologian, activist. Um, He actually, he coined, so he's an Anabaptist, but he's also um, heavily involved in black theology. So he's a black man himself. He coined the phrase Anablactivism, which I think is hilarious. It's so great. We're talking with him soon, but we talked about this idea of privilege um, in voting on this uh, Jesus Collective uh, pilot thing that I'm a part of right now. And he was saying um, that because that got brought up and he, he shared um, some similar thoughts to you. But he also pointed out um, another point that you made earlier, the importance of actually acting. And he said, if we look at the civil rights movement, look how much was accomplished with people who didn't have the privilege of voting. And so he wanted to point that out and still highlight mm-hmm. that, that even though, yeah, the privilege thing is very real. And um, all that kind of stuff. He also pointed out, like, look at this movement that happened. And he kind of talked about the importance of what he calls organizing um, versus just simply only voting, which is, I mean, the same point that you made. So thank sure. you for that. That was a uh, just I wanted to know <laughs> your thoughts. So
1: thank you. Yeah, that's great. So, Eugene, I also wanted to ask um so there was a there's a conversation uh that you you had in the book um where it talks kind of about um being told the truth and being lied to um and uh, and i I'm noticing and so i'm thirty five years old so I've not been alive uh, for as long as many um but what I've noticed now and I've heard many people say is that the vitriol and the bias of the news outlets today is much different than it has been in in history it's not always been that way news outlets have wanted to report the news um, but not necessarily report the news with a bias um, but then on top of that when we go on to social media we see conspiracy theories and we see um, different people giving their opinion as fact we also um, you know to be honest our president uh, many people would say he averages lying up to 22 20 times a day or something like that um but then at the same time others would say well he's not lying and so it's like it, it, it pretty pretty soon there's like no one knows what the truth is um you you brought up the american press institute has six questions to kind of ask about a news story but i wanted to hear your your thoughts how should we respond when we feel like we've been lied to by the press by politicians um how do we respond to that
2: well, man, you've just depressed me uh, saying all of those things. Thanks a lot. <laughs> oh, welcome to our podcast where our desire is to depress you. Uh, no.
0: Yeah, that's no, our goal. It's our new tagline.
2: Yeah. Um, no, I, I, I get it. And here, here's what I would say. I, mean, I think we should first just name it. Like we've got a name that is challenging. We have to name that our news and our media, and, and here's the thing, it's sometimes, I, and because I devote a chapter to it, we should name the challenges of media, of news. I'm not here to vilify them. I'm not here to demonize them. I think people are trying to do the right thing, but we understand that news is not just conveying the news, but we, we actually want news that gives us commentary. But as we're receiving news that gives us commentary, we sometimes forget that it comes with commentary, with biases, with perspectives, with angles, with human lens, and which is the reason why we should not be consuming news from just one news outlets, nor should we be absolutely obsessed with cable TV news, because why? it's also an industry it's a business, it involves money uh, and if and this is all news outlets, it feels like. We're basically living in a culture that's monetizing fear and division. That's how it feels like to me. Now, I'm not saying that that's their only uh, motivation, but it feels like that sometimes for me. So I want to just name the importance of naming it, of citing it, and then therefore saying, okay, if that's the case, how do I become more thoughtful, more prayerful, more wise so that I don't just become manipulated by media or manipulated by the dangers of politics. So earlier I mentioned that politics is really important. It still is, but for us to deny that it's really messy or manipulative would simply be naive. And that's some of the reasons why I have friends, whether they're Anabaptist or not, that feel like this is so corrupt, I don't want to participate in this process. So I, I get it. I get that, but I just think, again, we can choose to be wise, but also engage it as well. And then in the chapters, I I talk about some of the questions that we should be asking to help us discern some of those ways. I, in in my life, I have, there have been occasions I have been played, I have been lied to, knowingly or unknowingly, or I have been manipulated. And so as a result, I tend to be very cautious. So when I receive things, even though it might be in like bold news with lots of dramatic Michael Bay music in the background as I'm watching news, I'm trying to like just balance myself as I receive this news. And, you know, one of the confessions that I make in the book is rushing to a conclusion about the story of those high school students from Covington High School, Covington Catholic High School. And I make a confession that I just jumped on it without really researching it processing the news, shared something on social media, on Twitter, on Facebook. I found out that it went viral after I shared it as well, along with other folks. And I didn't fully get the fuller, larger perspective of that picture. And I was so compelled that I needed to make a public confession to say I made a mistake because I jumped to the gun and I let more of my emotions Uh, drive me in this particular uh, situation so again it's kind of a long-winded answer but I think it goes to again just saying that we need to be more thoughtful prayerful engaged Uh, maybe step back from the frenzy of our culture where we feel like the urge of addressing everything at a supernatural pace that we simply can't sustain
1: and, you know, it's one of the things Jesus talks about uh, in sort of in a passing way uh, in the Beatitudes when he, or I'm sorry, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, when he kind of says, um, when you get, when, when someone hits you on one cheek, turn the other cheek. Um, mm. And I think that it gives us the ability to allow people to do what they need to do if they feel like they need to manipulate or whatever. But I also think Jesus doesn't want us to be uh, like a doormat. That we just are treated terribly, and people will walk all over us and lie and manipulate us, and we just let it happen. Uh, but I, but I do think in many ways, kind of like you're saying, um, you know, being manipulated, it, it doesn't feel good. It doesn't, it, you know, you don't enjoy being lied to. But at the same time, um, you know, if if you're if you're able to recognize the lie, I feel like sometimes um, we can still act in the proper way and in a healthy way, while recognizing that this person has and is trying to manipulate us and, you know, keeping that in mind for the future, uh, you know, so.
2: Sure. And I think that this is a way for us, like How the, the way that we help build a healthier society and culture is we choose not to engage in those practices. Like mm-hmm. we just have to model a better way. And it sounds frustrating because it isn't sensational. It isn't viral. Like to call somebody a bully and swear at them and all of these things. It might not feel as good because let's be honest. If someone punches me, what would make me feel good is to punch back. That would make me feel good and in in my order of thinking, the right thing to do. But this is also what I meant earlier when I said to be a follower of Jesus is not an easy task. Mm -hmm. It's very, very challenging. But I think when we choose the other path, In the very small way, we're contributing to help people imagine a different culture, a different way of doing things, a different kingdom imagination. And so we need a a more life-giving, flourishing imagination that engages both the pastoral and the prophetic as followers of Jesus in our society.
0: Yeah, and it 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 reminds me of this this theme or like this this phrase that you kept coming back to and I was joking with Marty that we should have got t-shirts made um, that said jerks for Jesus and we were gonna <laughs> pretend that we were jerks for Jesus to see see your reaction. <laughs> but you talk about like we we have too much of that. We don't need more uh, jerks for Jesus. And Marty made this joke like, Yeah, we don't need more, we already are, so like we're good. We can stay- <laughs> Jesus. But, but, we notice things like another way this comes out is I've noticed that, like there people will defend the current president and say, "Okay, we're not allowed to talk bad about him. You can't say me and stuff, whatever, but then they'll put on blast the the previous president, and this works for anybody. I'm not just speaking about our current situation of of Trump and Obama or, or whatever, but like there's this tendency. The, the body of Christ, like you, you've mentioned, is split, it's broken, uh, people are jerks for Jesus, <laughs> and we don't need that. It's not yes. helpful. <laughs>
2: well, gosh, I don't know what more to add. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, um, I don't know what more to add to, to what you just shared, Josh. I uh, obviously would love to encourage people. Uh, you have my permission to make t-shirts, not just the two of you, but anyone that's listening. <laughs> Uh, we don't need more jerks for Jesus. Um, you know, for me, if there was one mic drop moment in the book, that would be it. You know, yeah. I could have just pro- probably just have written a, a one chapter book, and just put that hashtag, and that's it. Um, but on a more serious note, I mean, I I really do believe that this book isn't license or permission for people to be soft. Um, I don't want people to think if they're not going to read it that they're just assuming what Eugene is saying is, let's be passive, let's be soft. Uh, what he's saying is, be nice and be kind. That's not the crux of the book. I think it's really important for us to contend for the kingdom of God. I think it's really important for us to have convictions. I think it's really important for us to speak truth to power and to corruption. I think it's really important for us to march on streets. I think it's really important for us to do these things, I believe, that nevertheless, we can still do those things without dehumanizing those that we disagree with, without vilifying and demonizing people that we disagree with. So I have some strong views about how President Trump has orchestrated, conducted himself, and it frustrates me, but I refuse to dehumanize him. I refuse to, I, I, I just won't do it because my faith compels me to still pray for him, and I try to do that on a daily basis. But I also refuse to cower in fear and not speak truth to times when I feel like he's bullying, manipulating, lying. Uh, I don't know if you, you know this, but about a month ago, I responded as respectfully as I could to a tweet that President Trump uh, said. I responded to a couple of his tweets. But on this occasion, I responded to him uh, for whatever reason during a very, very anxious fearful time for Americans. He chose to call COVID-19, aka coronavirus, he chose to call it the Chinese virus. And I took exception to it, not just because I'm Asian, but because this is in the context of so many thousands upon thousands of cases of Asians and Asian Americans being verbally and physically assaulted and abused in our nation and around the world. And I just thought that was very dangerous language that it could foster and increase. And so I respectfully, respectfully responded to it. And um, I was stunned that, I mean, probably 10,000 plus tweets, replies, Washington Post wrote an article about it, which was cross-posted in about 15, 20 other articles And uh, I got my share of so much pushback and hate and venomous replies. And all along, my whole thing is I will not stoop to people's levels. I will not be intimidated from speaking up, but I also choose to not engage on the levels that people, and ultimately because I'm not trying to sound overly righteous. It's because I follow Jesus. Um, I want to choose a different way. And that's, in essence, what I'm trying to encourage Christians to do in this book.
1: Yeah. Well, and, Eugene, as as I read your book, I I really appreciated everything you had to say. Um, And and I think because um, the example you gave, just to, you know, as I'm thinking back towards the beginning of the book, where uh, you spoke at the Right for Life conferences, but then you would do marches where you would march for the rights of women. And uh, to me, there's so much honor in that. And as you mentioned, for the exact reason that um, you're showing your daughters um, what it means for people to stand for them and to be with them. But also you're showing your son that uh, this is what a man does. uh, (laughs) And, you know, how how that comes together. Uh, And so that was just very important to me to see, you know, and almost in some ways freeing, I think, and I think it will be for many people who who buy and read your book. Um, You don't have to buy into the, you know, check the Republican, like all Republican box on the ballot, or all Democrat box on the ballot, but not only when it comes to people, but also when it comes to the issues. You don't have to say, well, I've always been Republican or my family's always been Republican, so I guess I have to agree and figure out. So instead of, instead of shaping how we view politics based on our theology, like you talked about, you know, we, we sometimes look at President Trump's list of what he stands for on his website, and we try to mold ourselves to fit with some of those things that we're not quite sure we actually want to agree with. We say, well, if I'm, if I'm going to vote for him, I have to figure out how to be okay with how he feels about this or about that. Um, and some, and in some ways these days, uh, it's not as much what's written on the website, but what's said outside of those types of things in the public sphere. Um, and I think, uh, in a world now where so much can be found, what you said a, week, a year ago, a month ago, five years ago, now with everything is on, everything's on social media, everything's online. Um, anything you said, it's never gone completely. <laughs> Someone always well, took thanks a screenshot.
2: Again for, thanks again <laughs> for depressing me even more. I, my goodness. I mean, this is like. But, well, I'm, I'm saying it because for me, it's important for
1: us to remember that, you know, what we said before matters. And how we, and it's okay for us to not be okay with him saying certain things like that about women. What he said about women decades ago, we can be against that and not be for that and not be supportive of it in any way, shape, or form. But maybe there is something about his policies that we agree with it's okay for us to agree with that and disagree with the other be angry about the other and agree with what he says about that and still hold them you know hold them up by what he said and say you said this and that's not right and i think that's essentially what we do as pastors what we do as teachers we hold people responsible uh, and help people to see how they can grow you know as we disciple people and teach people how can we help people learn more about themselves uh, and get better, you know, and not for the sake of getting better, but for the sake of saying, you know, we want to be more like Jesus in everything we do. Um, and no matter what it is, we come across, we just we have sure, to figure sure. it out that. So
2: yeah, I mean, you know, I'm repeating myself. Politics is messy. It's so challenging. And it's hard. I mean, it really is. Uh, the examples that you gave about me speaking at Evangelicals for Life, and then at a March for Women conference, within the same month, Uh, the pushback criticism that I was getting from both sides before these events and afterwards was really, really dizzying, disorienting and discouraging. And I think what it shows me is that as Christians, we're never going to find our home in politics. We can engage it, but we're never gonna find a home. And a friend of mine, named Michael Weir, who served in the Obama administration, uh, shares in his book some of the tension and complexities that he experienced, engaged in that role. Um, And even in this book, he says, I think the mistake that Christians make is that we actually thought we could find our home in politics. Mm. So let's engage it. But that's not our home. It's not our identity. Our ultimate citizenship is in heaven. And that's not meant to be a cop-out answer, right? Because again, some people can take that verse and say, I choose to keep my hands clean. I'm not going to engage anything on this earth, but it's the whole mentality that we're called to be light and salt here on this earth. And politics is one way that we can choose to do that.
1: Hmm.
0: Yeah, that's so helpful. And I think too, the, the, just to, to cycle back to your, your one of your first points, the only way we're afforded the opportunity To live into that to be able to to speak at both the the evangelicals for life bit and do the the women's march the only way we're able to do that is if we don't get in bed with a particular political party but remember that the kingdom that we serve that we're trying to advance is the kingdom of god like you just said and not you know the kingdom of the usa or or wherever someone finds himself um because if we're always in bed with you know a particular party then it's really hard to speak truth to power but if we remember who the king is and what kingdom Mm. we're serving then we can Mm. do the kind of things you're talking about so i think that's so good
2: well you know uh it's it feels as if you read my book and i'm encouraged (laughs) by that you know (laughs) we definitely did we did yeah Yeah, those are
0: highlighting (laughs) yeah
2: no i mean and i really do i'm obviously i'm here talking about this Um, And as an author, uh, obviously, I would love for your listeners to check out and read the book, um, obviously. But um, I I really think it's because we need some direction. We need Mm. some guidance. Mm. And it's not a perfect book. I'm far from perfect. I am a blob of paradoxes and tension. But I think that's really what it means to be resurrection people living still in a broken Friday and silent Saturday world. It's inevitable. We want perfection. We want perfect compartmentalization, but it's not here. We know that 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 day will come, thankfully, praise God. I truly believe that Jesus will come back one day to restore all things back unto himself. But for now, we are invited to lean in to engage the mess as humbly as we can as followers of Jesus this isn't my, my line about being resurrection people living in a broken Friday world. I think it was Barbara Brown Taylor who first penned those words. But I think it says, and it's very beautiful, that we are resurrection people living in a broken Friday, silent Saturday world. And so that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus, whether it's in politics or in other spheres of life.
1: Yeah, thanks, Eugene. Well, I've really appreciated this conversation and hearing your perspective. I really have loved, really loved your book. Um, just as we kind of close out, where, where can people find you? I know you'd mentioned that you have a new gig coming up with uh, in your life, a little bit of life change, uh, cross-country move. I did something similar to that a few years ago. Um, and so can where can people find you?
2: well obviously people can find me on social media on twitter facebook instagram it's all under eugene cho and would love for you to follow me along on the journey and starting on july 1 i will be assuming the president position of bread for the world if you can check us out at bread.org we are inviting um, christians followers of jesus of all stripes from all denominations and streams to raise their voices. And the one conviction, the one issue that we fight for at Bread for the World is hunger. Like we believe that part of what it means to be human and to fight for human dignity is that no man, woman, or child should be hungry, especially in our nation that boasts itself as the wealthiest nation in the world. And we also are fighting for those around the world who are struggling with poverty, um, and so we would love to encourage people to learn more, to become an activist, to become a member. And if you follow me on social media, uh, my desire is to help people understand that advocacy is really part of our discipleship.
0: Sweet. Well, we will definitely be sure to not only link your book in the show notes so people can pick that up, but also uh, put the link for Bread for the World so people uh, can find that nice and easily right there on the in their podcast app and, and go check things out. So. Um, yeah but this again to echo Marty Eugene this has been a great conversation thank you so much for spending your Friday morning with us Um, and we're excited to to see you know what comes out of your uh, your new gig with Bread for the World I wish you the best of luck with that
2: all right thank you so much and uh, final words don't be jerks for Jesus
0: Bike <laughs> drop. There we go. That's right. Yeah, yeah. and we always like to say too, Eugene. This is how we like to, to wrap
1: up. I always like to say go Caps. And I say go Blackhawks. But also we can say go Kraken if that's the name of the Seattle team that, that comes.
2: Uh, I think it's go Thunderbirds. I think it's Thunderbirds. the Thunderbirds. But I could be wrong. All right, and All right.
1: then also
0: go Islanders. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. Sweet. All I'll right, bless Eugene, you guys. Peace, you. Uh, t- peace, peace, you. Goodness gracious, peace. Take
2: care. <laughs> All right, take care.